This is On Target, a look at politics, crime, education, what's happening in Newfoundland and Labrador with the people who know. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your On Target host, Linda Swain. Good afternoon, everyone. I trust you're having a good day. Well, what a summer we've had. Um, Some really beautiful weather, uh, great temperatures for many people, but uh, unusually hot in many areas. And we've seen what's been going on in Europe and parts of the United States, as well as mainland Canada in recent years. And there's no doubt that things are changing uh, for sure. And it's having a variety of impacts. Well, The highly pathogenic, I'm sorry, I struggle with that word, pathogenic strain of the avian flu is having a dramatic and devastating impact on local seabird populations, and you don't have to look very far to see the proof. And uh, this summer is is, um, uh, indicative of that. A lot of people getting out around and strolling the beaches and going out in boat, and uh, I myself have noticed uh, dead gulls, kittiwakes, gannets on beaches, all along the east coast here on the Avalon Peninsula. Well, warnings of a highly pathogenic form of bird flu in the metro region started circulating over the winter. What does this all mean for the local seabird population, which is already facing a variety of stresses, and we've seen some of those in recent years? Well, here to discuss that further is seabird biologist and Memorial University researcher, Dr. Ian Jones. Hello. Hello, Linda. Thanks a lot for having me on. Well, thanks for uh, joining us and, and being so um, eager to do so. Um, I guess we'll start with, with the basics. What is the avian flu? Well, what's happening here? That's the theme of your show, right? Um, what's happening is we have a really deadly strain of avian influenza um, that's reached epidemic proportions in Newfoundland, and it's also pretty much presenting globally over the last 12 months or so. Um, and it's most conspicuous here in, in showing up as dead seabirds. It, how does it affect birds specifically? How does it impact them? Well, some of these questions, you've got to remember, I'm a, I'm a seabird biologist. I mainly work on behavior and, and demography and, you know, how big their eggs are and things like that. So uh, I'm not a virologist, nor am I a uh, microbiologist. So uh, most of my knowledge about the behavior of viruses is comes from discussions with colleagues and reading the Wikipedia page. But basically, um, influenza is a type of virus, and there are strains of influenza that affect people and domestic animals and birds. And this is a bird strain. So this is a strain of the virus that um, that birds are vulnerable to, and not so much people and other things. And it's a it's a it's a variant strain, a deadly variant strain of this virus that's referred to as H5N1, which, as you say, is highly pathogenic, which is just a fancy way of saying really deadly. And what makes it so deadly? Why why is it that it, it doesn't just make a bird sick and off its oats, so to speak, for a little uh, for a period of time, but it actually kills them? Well, uh, that's again, that's a question for somebody who's an expert on uh, physiology and veterinary medicine of birds. But basically what I can tell you is that once infected with this virus, um, birds' respiratory system and a variety of other systems very rapidly start to shut down and they're dead within a short period of time. 
it's devastating. It has to be hard for someone like you that works with uh, these animals uh, regularly. Uh, what are you seeing? Well, we, we scientists, we, we try to pride ourselves in our objectivity, and, and normally I can remain ob- more or less objective when talking about things like this. But really, we're talking about the deaths of, of tens at least, of, if not hundreds of thousands of seabirds, which um, conservationists have worked for many decades to try to restore and protect their populations, and now suddenly um, thousands of them are dropping dead. So it's it's a very difficult time for people who like birds. Uh, how is it typically spread among the birds? The uh, From what I understand, it has to be spread by direct contact with uh, the bird's waste material, uh, saliva, um, you know, uh, secretions, things like that. It, as far as I can determine, it is not spread um, by the air. So birds have to come in, to con- in pretty much direct contact with other birds that are infected or with their droppings or uh, other secretions from their bodies. And once that gets going, um, most individuals of susceptible species are dead very quickly. So I I would imagine then, based on that, that uh, this is what makes seabirds so vulnerable, this this tendency they have to congregate or colonize. That's definitely a factor, although it's not the only factor. I mean, if you look at the birds here that have been, that are most conspicuously affected, it's common murres and northern gannets, and both of those um, congregate very densely at their breeding colonies, so they're really almost touching neighboring birds. So that's going to make things um, rough for them. On the other hand, there is other species that seem to come in contact with the the same virus and don't suffer ill effects. So, for example, in comparison, around St. John's, ducks that have been sampled around local, local duck ponds, apparently many or most of them have come into contact with the virus but have suffered no ill effects. So there seems to be something about these seabird species that make them particularly physiologically susceptible, in addition to their behavioral vulnerability by their congregating in dense groups. Is that part of your research as well, trying to figure out what makes uh, these types of birds uh, so vulnerable? Um, well, I, I've worked with some of my graduate students. I worked with a graduate student, Sabir, a few years ago, and we, we definitely we, we published a paper on avian flu, and it was really an advisory paper for water bird biologists, and we were trying to get at you know, how much of a threat is this to populations and what can we do to try to mitigate it. Um, that, that paper was actually published in 2007, a few years ago. And you say it's it's affecting common murres and northern gannets to a higher degree. Uh, these two populations have uh, suffered some stresses and strains in recent years. Let uh, you know, aside from from avian flu. Yeah, um, um, common murre. It's it's one of our most abundant seabirds. We have we had, I should say, um, you know, more than a million of them. Um, but it's a species that um, it, it it feeds on capelin, so. It's vulnerable to changes in its food supply. Uh, it gets drowned in commercial gill nets by the thousands. Um, and uh, so that then there's various climate change and other factors that are affecting this bird. So this, this uh, deadly flu thing is, is, uh, is yet another kind of dire threat to that bird. 
As far as gannets are concerned, gannets have been doing spectacularly well for many decades. So their populations have been steadily increasing, the size of their colonies increasing. There's been some setbacks in which, due to temporary failures of food supply, colony sites were temporarily abandoned by the adults. But you have to remember the life history of these seabirds is very much uh, focused on adult survival. So they can afford to have breeding failures regularly or once in a while. But because the adults essentially live forever, um, their populations can be maintained. And that's unfortunately what makes the the flu here uh, particularly of concern for seabird populations because it is killing adults that cannot be replaced easily by the due to the population characteristics of the birds. And when uh, these seabirds nest, do, do they have typically one offspring, five offspring? Yeah, that's the thing. A good comparison is really if you consider the mallard duck, American hunters kill about three million mallard ducks a year. But it's totally sustainable. There's just as many mallards alive in the next year. And that's because mallard ducks have a lot of offspring. They lay a lot of eggs, and they also breed at a very young age. They're very much able to, re- to, to replace um, members of the population that die with, by hunting or whatever. By comparison, our seabird species, they have a clutch size generally of one egg. There's a few species that have a clutch size of two. But murres and gannets have a clutch size of one egg. They don't breed successfully until they're five or so or more years old. And their breeding success depends on long-term pair bonds between very old adults. So you can see where this is going in relation to a deadly flu epidemic that's killing uh, a substantial proportion of the adult population. These birds are not going to be replaced anytime soon. Right. So if you have a pair bond and, and one of the animals does not survive, does that mean that the the surviving bird does not reproduce? Well, absolutely. If you look at those birds you mentioned that you're seeing dead on beaches, they're, those are adult birds, probably breeding birds. And it means somewhere else, if you see a dead bird on a beach, somewhere else is its mate that is widowed or perhaps ill and, and dying itself. But even if its mate survived, then that mate has to find a new a new partner. Um, and that's that's not a simple process. It doesn't happen instantly. So you can see there's there's a direct effect of the mortality, but there's also a social effect on complete disruption of the of, of breeding pairs of these birds at these sites. What's the current situation in St. Mary's? Well, I haven't been down there, but um, from from what I've I, I've seen is just scenes of devastation. So lots of birds dying, and then where onshore winds um, are coming onto beaches, like at the big beach at Point Lance, um, they're finding hundreds of, of dead murres and, and gannets. Our guest today on On Target is seabird biologist Dr. Ian Jones. We're talking about uh, the avian flu and uh, the strain, uh, highly pathogenic strain of avian flu that's having a dramatic impact on local seabird populations. We'll be back right after this. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. And we're back. My guest today on On Target is Dr. Ian Jones, a local seabird biologist with Memorial University. And uh, Dr. Jones, how widespread is the extent of the virus locally? 
When you say locally, do you mean on the island of Newfoundland? I mean in, in Newfoundland and Labrador, yeah. I think it's we can we can speculate that it's it's pretty well everywhere on the island of Newfoundland, and it's probably making its way into Labrador right now. Can it spread to other bird populations? I noticed um, when I was out and about that uh, there were some shorebirds poking around on the beaches where the gull carcasses had washed up, and I was thinking about crows and birds of prey and those kinds of things. Can it spread to other birds? um, It certainly theoretically can, and I, just in my own being about town, in the spring in May, I, I found two dead cedar waxwings, which is an interesting bird, and a number of dead crows. And I was wondering, you know, whether they might have been victims of the of this uh, highly pathogenic flu. So it certainly can affect uh, other species. There's, you know, we have a wide variety of different bird species, and they differ in their susceptibility to death by the virus. And so that's why, well, why we're seeing so many dead seabirds is they are. They are both, we have a lot of seabirds, or we had a lot of seabirds, and they're susceptible to the virus. The other thing is, um, a lot of small woodland birds and things like that, if they did die, would we expect to be finding them? You know, probably not. Whereas, on the beach at Point Lance near Cape St. Mary's, uh, seabirds drifting in dead are going to be very conspicuous and easily countable. So there's really a lot of unknowns here. Um, as to what's going on. So the big question is, how did it get here? Yeah, there's been uh, two papers uh, published earlier this year in the two top scientific journals in the world, the journal Nature, uh, published in, I think, July, and there was, there was one published in Science earlier in the year. Um, and they both speculated that the virus got to North America via migratory birds, which is up until now, we didn't really have a lot of evidence, or we didn't really have any evidence of um, transatlantic transport of the virus by flu. The evidence for this is pretty speculative. Um, basically, suddenly the highly pathogenic variant showed up in St. John's. So we're kind of internationally famous now. It showed up in December 2021. And that was really, it's it's sort of uh, entry discovery point in North America, and then subsequently, um, in the past nine months, it's uh, it's spread widely. Um, and the, the the suggestion is that um, migratory birds, some of which crossed the Atlantic, brought it in, infected birds in this area, other birds got infected, and it was transported by uh, other migratory birds. However. Many scientists still believe that it's really industrial poultry farming that's largely to blame for the origin and the spread of the virus. So this is, um, I don't think this is a completely known um, phenomenon. I don't think we, we totally understand it. I, I find the uh, transport by migratory birds across the Atlantic believable because um, we birders who are always looking at the weather experienced an incredible windstorm in October of 2021. Really just very strong, stormy, gale force, transatlantic winds going on for a week. And then after that, there were records all over the Northeast here of uh, unusual birds, like in particular barnacle geese, a rare type of goose that basically you never see in North America. But all of a sudden, in December 2021 to spring 2022, a lot of these were around, and this particular bird, the barnacle goose, had been subjected to 
highly pathogenic flu outbreaks in Scotland, where uh, subsequently a, a good proportion of the wintering population of this bird has died in Scotland. But some of them got blo- definitely got blown across to North America last fall. So it's speculation, but um, the idea is it got transported here by these, these, these vagrants. Is it possible it could be a little bit of both? Um, because we did have it uh, identified at a couple of local farms or hobby farms, whatever you want to call them. Um, is it possible that it uh, came here through poultry brought in or that it, it, wild, it the possible. wild population yeah. infected the it, domestic ones? Yeah, it's very much possible. And if you look at the pattern, so it shows up here in St. John's in December 2021. But then within a few months, during the middle of winter time. It's showing up all across central parts of Canada, reaching even then even to Saskatchewan, at a time of year when, frankly, there aren't there isn't bird migration in that direction. So certainly, um, human transport uh, via various uh, commercial activities is a is a, another likely cause of the spread of the virus. So is this new to North America? Have we seen this before? Well, remember, um, avian influenza virus is something that's been around basically forever. So what the way that it's being monitored is to look for these new deadly strains that can be ad- uh, genetically identified as being new and different and also deadly. Um, the particular phenomenon that we're seeing now involves a variant called H5N1, um, and this appears to have first evolved in commercial operations in Asia, in China, at a goose production facility, commercial, in around 1996. It then spread to Europe, where it's been bouncing around, again, possibly by migratory birds and, and also likely by a, by a transportation of uh, poultry and things and then it seems to have really got this big boost in 2021 which has led to its appearance in north america now and then really all across the world it's in uh, it's in southern africa a colleague of mine is has described it from sri lanka which is in south asia so it's spreading very rapidly and widely across the planet and really the only places that I, th- I, I think as of, as of recently it hadn't occurred is Antarctica and Australia. Well, it's very concerning indeed. When we come back after the break, I want to ask you about how bird populations in Europe and Asia have been dealing with this and whether or not um, immunity can be built up as a result. Um, When we come back after the break, my guest today on On Target is Dr. Ian Jones, seabird biologist. We'll be back right after this. Join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. And our guest today is seabird biologist and Memorial University researcher Dr. Ian Jones. And we're talking about uh, the bird flu. And um, uh, Dr. Jones, are are bird populations negatively being affected? In Eurasia, you mentioned the barnacle goose in in Scotland. But are are local populations in uh, Europe and Asia being negatively affected? Well, they certainly are. I I can give a few examples. For example, a seabird called Great Skua, which uh, nests around the British Isles, the world population is 16,000 birds, and it looks like between 65 and 85% of them abruptly died earlier this year. So that's 
you know, world population of a species that's been um, reduced by at least 65 and maybe 85%. That's serious. Uh, another bird called the Dalmatian pelican, that's a pelican uh, species. Its world population is 8,000 individuals, um, and at least 2,000 of those are known to have died. So that's one quarter of the population died um, very abruptly. Um, and the list really goes on and on. It's uh, similar things uh, in around Great Britain for northern gannets, where um, a substantial proportion of the population has died. And again, in the case of seabirds, remember, their, their life history doesn't allow them to easily replace uh, themselves if they suffer adult mortality. Those types of uh, numbers are, are shocking. Um, what does this say about the survivors, or is it just a, a matter of them not being infected yet? Well, that's, that's the big question. I mean, this is a major chip that's been taken out of many birds' populations over a short period of time. Um, and the question is, is the virus just going to disappear suddenly, or is it going to come back um, and take another chip out of these birds? Because remember, the, these birds have very low reproductive rate. They're not really able to rapidly evolve uh, through evolutionary processes. They're not able to rapidly evolve resistance. Uh, they just can't, they're unable to replace themselves that rapidly with new individuals that are resistant. So it could be really a horrific situation for seabirds. The One of the really sad things that I'm contemplating is when this uh, deadly flu does make it to Antarctica, um, imagine what it's likely to do to some of these large penguin colonies that are down there. It's just it's it's horrific and, and sickening to compliment to 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 contemplate what's likely to happen. Chilling indeed. And this is just one season. Do you expect this? I mean, we all expected COVID in the very early days. Ah, this will take about three months, six months. So here we are three years in and there's no abatement yet. So uh, what can we expect in, in future years? What are researchers like yourself, you know, considering in that regard? I would say it's very dangerous to make any predictions about the future, um, especially when you have a rapidly evolving virus. So, you know, it could it could evolve. The virus could change to something less pathogenic, or it could change to something more pathogenic. It could even change into something that could affect humans. So we don't know. Um, the the thing is, what the question would be: Well, what kinds of things can we do as a strategy? to minimize in the long term the effects of things like this. And I was going to ask you that. I mean, when the COVID pandemic began, we started to impose health measures to prevent spread, including keeping our distance between people, wearing masks, limiting travel and gatherings. How can bird flu, which is in the wild population, be contained? Well, it's the, in, the interaction between commercial poultry operations and wild birds that interaction is a crucial element of this this phenomenon so we basically wild birds carrying the deadly variant are a threat to poultry operations and poultry operations that might also have it are a threat to wild birds they're threats to one another so the 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 solution in that area is to act very quickly to absolutely contain and minimize interactions between industrial birds and wild birds. So that means 
making the biosecurity regulations for poultry farms even stricter than they are, and preventing, thus preventing any exposure of those uh, captive flocks, which are obviously worth billions of dollars to farmers, uh, from getting getting the pathogen. Um, especially curtailing outdoor operations that where wild birds and uh, commercial birds can interact. Unfortunately, this this is not viable in the current situation of these these viruses. Those, so those have to be shut down, both for the protection of wild birds and also for the protection of, of uh, industrial activities. Are you satisfied with uh, the the reaction or response from government agencies in, in trying to contain this? Well, I know that they're trying, and I know that they have science that they're using in their attempts, but what, what, we're, what we're seeing both in Europe and also in North America is repeated cases of outbreaks at poultry operations that are supposedly in secure metal buildings um, where the virus is outbreaking. So obviously, whatever biosecurity um, protocols are in place, they haven't been enough to keep this uh, from happening. Now, I don't know whether it's, it came in on somebody's shoes, on dirt on somebody's shoes, or a European starling found its way into the building through a crack in the eaves troughing. I don't really know. But either way, um, it shows a lack of biosecurity. So there's certainly room for improvement in that area. Those starlings are certainly wily. They can get in some pretty amazing places. I've seen it myself. Right, but if you've got a multi-million dollar um, poultry facility in a metal building, you should be able to uh, ensure that starlings aren't burrowing their way in there. And you should be able to make sure that people aren't bringing in virus on their clothes and footwear. Now, uh, we live in St. John's, uh, and uh, that is uh, an urban area. Urban areas, uh, we're all familiar with gulls, crows, and pigeons. Are any of those populations being affected? Well, they, these, these birds seem to be very resistant to this virus. So they seem to be able to get it and probably move it around, but not die in large numbers. And, and this is really of extreme concern to me. So, for example, you mentioned seagulls. We basically remember back when this started happening, the government put out messages saying the public, members of the public should take down their backyard bird feeders because these bird feeders were congregating. I I had a congregation myself of two dark-eyed juncos going to my feeder in my backyard. And the government's line was this bird feeding was a problem in relation to the flu. Well, I sort of agree and I sort of disagree with this. First of all, I don't think backyard bird feeders are the problem. I think landfill sites where you have tens of thousands of seagulls stuffing themselves on food that's being put in the dump every day is a giant avian flu super spreader. So I wouldn't advise members of the public to take down their feeders, but I would advise governments to tighten up their management, uh, their waste management around landfills so we don't have these, uh, these flu super spreader things going on. Well, that's going to take some uh, pretty serious action. Well, the serious action would be covering up the garbage when it's deposited in the dump very promptly because um, gulls are not digging up the gar- digging the garbage that's been buried. They're eating food that's in present in freshly deposited garbage. So you, you could 
pretty well 100% eliminate gulls from the dump if you weren't if you stop feeding them. When we come back after the break, I want to ask you how this uh, affects uh, your your own research and, and the way that you conduct it. When we come back after the break, my guest today on On Target is seabird biologist and Memorial University researcher Dr. Ian Jones. We'll be back right after this. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. My guest today on On Target is bird biologist, seabird biologist, Dr. Ian Jones. And um, Dr. Jones, does the, the ch- uh, this outbreak change the way in which you and your colleagues conduct research? Well, speaking personally, um, you know, I, I found this particularly devastating. I, I don't really want to be appearing to to feel sorry for myself considering the amount of suffering that's going out there in these birds. But um, it has affected uh, what I do. I've, um, I, frankly, I've, I've avoided, avoided looking at it. Um, I've seen some of the birds washing up around Whitless Bay, and it's just very disturbing. I've been going out less in my boat because I, I don't want to be seeing carcasses at sea. Um, I know some of our colleagues here at the university are actually are. This is the subject that they work on, so they're they're busily at work on this. Uh, my research mostly now doesn't directly touch on that, so I haven't been out uh, in my in a hazmat suit um, picking up carcasses. Thank goodness. So, what are you currently researching? I'm analyzing some data sets on um, movement of seabirds using tracking devices, and I'm analyzing some data sets on birds that we whose uh, characteristics we measured at different colonies to look into th- to survival rates. Um, and patterns of their uh, sizes of their ornamentation, uh, things like that. Anything surprising about their movements in particular? Well, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, the seabird movement is obviously something we would like to quantify more, especially now that patterns of, of, of such movement could be in, involved in uh, transmission diseases. So um, I think the, the thing that we're finding generally is you put these high-tech tracking devices on seabirds, um, and the results are totally mind-boggling. A few years ago, one of my students who was working on a gull in the high Arctic called Sabine Skull um, had a, a pair of birds she was working on, and she put tracking devices on these pair members to see where they go in the wintertime. And one member of the pair wintered off South Africa, so off Namibia and South Africa in the southernmost part of the Atlantic Ocean, whereas its mates migrated into the Pacific Ocean and wintered off Peru and the west coast of South America. So that's the kind of mind-boggling you know, results of really you know, global connectivity of birds that are moving around, that are being revealed by these tracking studies. That is uh, quite fascinating, uh, especially to know that, a, that a, a pair like that would split off in that kind of way. It's incredible. Yeah, we never expected to see that. Two birds wintering in dim- different hemispheres getting together during the summer to raise offspring. That was worked by uh, my student Shanti Davis a few years ago. Just amazing. Um, so are you picking up any interesting data like that? Not, uh, not recently. I mean, this this whole uh, flu pandemic thing has come on so suddenly. Really, starting 
sort of became aware of it last fall, and then it's we're kind of uh, standing around being very shocked and stunned uh, this summer and haven't really regrouped to even imagine, start to imagine how we might try to react to it. But there's certainly things that uh, we would, scientists would advise that could be done, and one of them is to, is our, the giant bird feeder, the, the dump, is to do less feeding of gulls. That's That's got to help. Other things, but one of the species that's been mostly affected is the common myrrh. And common myrrhs are the subject of, of, a, of a large uh, recreational and food hunt, the Newfoundland tur hunt. And so you've got to be concerned here about a bird that's a major uh, source of food for that hunt, um, whose population is in the process of being decimated by a pathogenic disease. So we would need to look even more carefully uh, about the conservation of common MERS uh, to be concerned about that. I think that's that's one of the major things that, that I would say has come about because of this. Uh, and I need to ask you this before we go, because I know you have been vocal on this. Um, earlier this summer, the province served notice that it was looking at ways to cull cormorants um, here in Newfoundland and Labrador. Is that necessary? What What's behind that? Well, cormorant, uh, double-crested cormorant is one of the birds whose population has been recovering for a number of decades now, following the bans on very harmful toxic pesticides like DDT and other pesticides. And those cormorants and northern gannets and bald eagles and a lot of other fish-eating birds, their numbers are increasing. And um, for some reason, there's a small but vocal group of people who, for whatever reason, don't like cormorants. Um, and as far as I can tell, that hatred of cormorants is mostly irrational, but um, there seem to be some connections of the, these folks to the wildlife division. Personally, I don't think we have anything to fear from cormorants. Um, as far as whether they've been affected by avian flu yet, I don't have any data on that. I don't know. So could it be just the increase in numbers, the fact that they're being so successful that's making them a little more visible to people, perhaps? That, uh, yeah, there's that, and they also they eat fish. And, um, you know, there's some folks around here who think if something eats fish um, that it's bad. And I don't subscribe to that notion, but um, that is something that uh, some people believe, whether it's a, a cormorant or a seal. Do you know what kind of uh, an impact now has this cull begun, or do you know what the status of that is? I, I know the as of a few weeks ago, the Wildlife Division had a few permit applications to shoot cormorants, um, and as far as I could tell, several of them these applications were turned down. Um, but several of them were allowed, and I don't have any details about where they would have been. But I, I personally, as a scientist, I can't imagine um, any justification for such a cull on scientific grounds. And do their colonies, when they develop colonies, do they become a problem? I mean, I've seen what's going on in um, uh, in the Great Lakes, and I, I know some of the impact that those birds have had on uh, some of the ecosystems there. But is it similar here? Well, we've got hundreds of thousands of puffins and gannets and turs um, that have colonies on, on islands around Newfoundland and Labrador, um, and they do, they do poop on their colony sites, and it does smell like poop. 
and the amount of poop affects the kind of vegetation that you see there. Uh, Cormorants aren't any different from that, and generally we don't consider puffin poop to be a problem. Um, Why cormorant poop would be a problem, I don't know. So with this, uh, the bird flu, and I guess, like you indicated, uh, you know, researchers sort of standing around stunned, wondering what's next, uh, you know, how do you conduct your research? Is your research relevant <laughs> in some cases, you know, depending on the circumstance? Um, where do we go from here? I mean, do we just stand by and watch? Is there anything that we can do? I think there's some things we can do. I think seabirds... We're, are a group of birds that have more endangered and threatened species almost than almost any other type of bird in the world. We know what the threats to them are, and these have been pointed out by scientists. And so it, it really it, it raises an even greater incentive to convince politicians to implement greater protections on seabirds. And I'll just mention a few. Leech's storm petrel, a bird that's in critical declines, being killed by light attraction in the offshore and on our coast. It's critical concern about this bird. Common murs and thick-billed murs that are subject to a large hunt that is partly a market, an illegal market hunt. Um, I would say there's never been more concern about, about conservation of murs species than there is now. Um, just a lot of focus. Also, gill netting. The our, the coast of our island is strung with gill nets, which drown hundreds, well, tens at least of thousands of these seabirds, including turs, every year. Is there some way we can modify our use of this gear so we're not killing so many of these, these threatened birds? Has, have these concerns been raised with, um, you know, government regulators? I certainly have been raising them. I am a scientist, but I'm I'm also an advocate for seabird conservation, and when they ask me, you know, what can we do? I say, well, maybe reduce the number of MERS or drowning in gill nets if you want to help. Or maybe uh, control lighting around offshore oil facilities so that it doesn't attract and kill thousands of storm petrels. And we see what's going on now, uh, especially on the uh, southern shore with the annual um uh, puffin patrol and uh, the the petrol patrol, so to speak, but uh, that's changed things as well. There should people, if they see uh, a, a bird that is obviously in distress, what should a person do? I would say, in the current situation, absolutely do not approach it or touch it, or if you if it's dead, do not pick it up. Um, it, basically, that's a potential health risk to you. Um, and it's of little benefit to the bird. I've been a bit of a skeptic, and it's made me unpopular in some quarters. I've been a bit of a skeptic of the, the puffin patrol. I think it would be better to get people to turn off the lights that are attracting the puffins in the first place rather than trying to hand them a Band-Aid afterwards when they're pretty much doomed. Dr. Ian Jones, I really appreciate your time and your insight today. Um, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on, Linda. I'm sorry I didn't have a lot more happy and fun things to say, but, um, yeah, it's a, it's a dire situation. It's a serious situation. I know myself walking the beaches over the last couple of weeks that it's uh, been front of mind for me, for, uh, you know, someone who enjoys being outside in the outdoors, and uh, I know it's front of mind for a lot of bird uh, lovers out there. Thank you very much. You're welcome. All righty. Bye-bye. 
And we'll be back tomorrow. Stay tuned for that. Uh, and uh, stay tuned throughout the course of the evening as well. We'll have all the updates on what's going on in Stephenville. Jerry Lynn Mackey out there uh, knocking it out of the park. Thank you very much, everyone.